Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Moments with Maya. Conversations of love and laughter. The show where each week, your host, healthcare administrator and certified humour professional, Maya Aziz, invites someone who is out there pushing the positive to join her for a heartfelt and often hilarious coffee conversation about love, laughter, leadership and, well, life. Love and laughter might not cure what ails you, but they sure go a long way to getting you through those tough life moments. So sit back, pour yourself a cup and get ready to laugh and learn today on Morning Moments. Look for the good. It is all around. It sure is. And good morning and happy new year. That's right. This is our first show of 2017. I can't believe it. Wow. A whole year gone. And I, of course, want to wish all of you listeners a very, very happy new year, a new year of good health, of love, of laughter, and I hope some new adventures, whatever they might be for you, isn't that what life is about? Now, I am not really one for making New Year's resolutions. I'm going to admit to you that the pressure is a little bit more than my quite fallible self can handle. But if I were to make a resolution, I kind of like what actor Cyril Cusack says when he said, if you ask me for my New Year's resolution, it would be to find out who I am. And for me, part of my eternal quest to do just that is, of course, these wonderful Sunday morning conversations with such a group of varied and dynamic and beautiful guests. And here we are again, ready to go in 2019 with a whole new series of great Sunday morning coffee conversations. So I hope you have poured yourself a cup. I have poured myself about my third and uh, am ready to go. Now, we have talked a lot about humor and healthcare on this show, how it can be used to build relationships between patients and healthcare providers how it can boost resilience and healing during a healthcare crisis. We can go back to Norman Cousins, and we can probably all agree that there is no doubt of its power and value for those coping with illness and disability. But what about the professionals providing the care? Those doctors, counselors, nurses, EMTs in the trenches day after day whose vocation has been to care for the sickest of the sick, Is there laughter for them? Statistics Canada recently published their first ever national uh, survey of the work and health of nurses. And the results came out with that 8 out of 10 nurses accessed their EAP, their Employee Assistance Program, which is over twice as high as EAP use by the total employed population. And other studies have found up to 50% of physicians and other healthcare providers working in oncology, for example, report high levels of emotional exhaustion and low levels of personal accomplishment. 
Similar findings have been found among other helping professionals from child protection workers to law enforcement to counselors to EMTs. These dedicated folks, folks that we depend on to care for us when we're really, really in need, are running on empty. Who cares for the caregivers? Well, I happen to know one person who certainly does. Cynthia Keeler is a mental health counselor and coach who assists clients to recognize and develop their resilience through prevention and wellness techniques, including positive psychology, the arts, humor, laughter, and mindfulness. With over 25 years of experience in therapeutic clowning, Cynthia, who is a certified laughter leader and active member of the Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor, has a particular passion to encourage self-care awareness and self-compassion among healthcare providers, first responders, and caregivers. And aren't we so lucky to have her here with us today to share that very passion on the air. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Cynthia. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Hi, Maya. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be one of your first interviewees for the new year. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. I'm so grateful for you to to join me this morning. Uh, I know we're all coming off the, the buzz and the eggnog fog of the holiday season. But what better way, you know, I think about all these healthcare providers uh, who are now going back to work perhaps after the holidays. They are, I hope, rested and renewed, but launching back into what is surely, uh, you know, a challenge on a day-to-day basis. So I think the timing of our our conversation uh, is very fitting. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, a lot of people, especially over the holidays, get extra stressed, unfortunately. Um, You know, people have suffered losses in the past. A lot of times they're um, brought to full force during holiday time. So um, it's important, yeah, to be aware of the extra kind of stresses that might happen during holiday time, too. You know, that's actually a very good point. Thank you for the bringing that up because, you know, we think, oh, it's the holidays. Everyone's off having a good time. And, but the, you're, you're so right that the reality is that actually it can be an incredibly stressful um, and quite emotional time for, for many people. Uh, and now, of course, they're coping with all of that, whatever might have happened, uh, having faced various things with families and now going back to work. Before we sort of launch into our conversation, I, I feel like maybe we should clarify some terms. What is compassion fatigue? Well, compassion fatigue basically is also termed vicarious traumatization or secondary traumatization. So what happens is when someone is uh, uh, caretaking uh, in, you know, a nurse, a doctor, a first responder, um, and they're treating others that are in distress, and usually it's more of a traumatic type stress, then sometimes that can lead them to, you know, over, to kind of over-emote and create too much connection and attachment to the situation. So there can Makes- be some, you know, some burnout with, with that type of compassion for your population, your therapists, nurses, doctors, or come to mind in that area for sure. 
And is it just for my own sake, I mean, would you equate it? Is it the same thing as burnout or are we talking about something different? Well, burnout, there's some similarities, quite a few, but the main difference would be burnout's usually more associated with your work environment. So, you know, maybe you're just emotionally exhausted because the workload is too much or you're not getting along with your, um, you know, coworkers or, you know, just the stress of the paperwork and that sort of thing. So, you know, burnout usually could be remedied by just, you know, switching your job or switching your department or that sort of thing versus compassion fatigue, which really has more to do with the kind of work that you're doing and, you know, switching jobs or, you know, just taking a vacation per se is not going to necessarily uh, correct that emotional, um, uh, I'm going to say dysfunction, but that emotional awareness that, that's really intense with compassion fatigue. Okay, so it's really, it's really about the nature of what these particular professionals are, are witness to on a daily basis. Correct, yes. It's more about the trauma, you know, like a, if you think of an ENT or emergency room doctor or, or just even in general, even, you know, mental health counselors or uh, any kind of first responder where they're coming onto the scene and there's a lot of trauma going on, uh, you know, whether, well, here in Orlando, you know, this year we had the uh, Pulse nightclub club tragedy that is still mm-hmm. affecting us here uh, greatly. And recently, you know, we had the shootings down in Fort Lauderdale. So in our area, because I'm in Florida, we uh, this, this year have had quite a bit of trauma and tragedy. So our first responders are very on high alert and have, um, I think it's only for, I think maybe it was like four months or something that the uh, a couple of the victims were still in the hospital. So, you know, our nursing staff or doctors were having to continue, you know, to see that daily and help with that situation. And after a while, that can take a toll, or even in, quickly it can take a toll on a person viewing that kind of trauma that you're not used to seeing. Uh, of course. I mean, it has to, you know, witnessing other people's suffering in that way. I mean, I think about, you know, those of us who just hear about these horrible events um, are affected to actually be there and be part of the care and the outcomes of that care can vary as well. Uh, that, that kind of suffering has to impact on a person. Now, how do, how do you even know if perhaps it is impacting you on a way that, as you say, is, is becoming, starting to become dysfunctional? What are the signs of it in somebody? Well, some of the the common signs between just even burnout and compassion fatigue would be just becoming emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted, um, mental exhaustion, uh, being very kind of, you know, isolating yourself, being disconnected, you know, from people and places and things that are around you. But specifically with compassion fatigue, besides all that, then there's some other kinds of disturbances that might happen, you know, where um, obviously, you know, the, again, when I said the sleep disturbances are emotional or cognitive, but, you know, depression can set in, post-traumatic stress syndrome can, can set in, um, you know, your views of the world and your place in it and, you know, uh, existential questions, you know, what is life, what's the purpose, what's it about, why is it happening? So a lot of those kinds of internal questioning and then anger, you know, about what, 
you know, what's happened and why is it happening and who's responsible. And so there's a lot of emotions that go, which obviously, as I'm saying all that, can be very emotionally draining, physically draining, and um, and and can cause, you know, a major dysfunction if it's not attended to and also in advance to have prevention and wellness in place, which is, I think, really more what you and I are about, trying to, you know, create the prevention and wellness up front to give people the, the stability and the strength and the energy and the resilience to um, operate under these circumstances and, and be efficient for themselves and, and still have a, a good life for themselves. Exactly. Uh, and we're certainly going to get into that more, this, this notion of what can we, can we do to build our resilience uh, before we get to that point. Just before we get to that, I'm curious, um, you know, there's this interesting kind of balance, I guess, that someone has to achieve because, you know, it's important that these healthcare providers care about the the patients that they're interacting with. I mean, we don't want them to completely disconnect and remove themselves. And yet what we're talking about is when they're on, they sort of cross into being too emotionally tied. I mean, Am I understanding uh-huh. that right, that there's sort of a, a balance to that, uh, you know, caring but not to the point where it's impacting on you? Yes, and that's the, you know, the million-dollar question for sure is how do you maintain <laughs> that balance, yeah, long long term. And so having an awareness of, you know, yourself, your limitations, your uh, hot buttons um, to be able to um, – you know, have people around you that you can, you know, talk to, have that self-awareness so that you can understand for, your, for yourself, because everyone's different, what it takes to balance your life and your work and your vocation. So there's, you know, a lot of opportunities, you know, out there, you know, besides obviously the, the obvious ones, which are, you know, making sure you get enough rest and, and you know, exercise and, um, you know, identify, you know, for yourself what your needs are. But that's not always easy to do. You know, sometimes you lose sight of your needs as you care for other people. Uh, for sure. And I, and I think in this sort of world where our, you know, both in the United States and up here in Canada, our healthcare systems are increasingly um, overloaded, just the pace. I mean, people are just running, just even taking the time, I think, to to be more self-aware is not not always easy. Um, I think it's it's interesting that you talk about self-awareness because it starts there, right? I mean, it's not like there's a recipe and everyone's going to follow it. You sort of have to take the time to know, as you say, what what do you need? How are you doing? And what's going to work for you? Yes, because there really isn't a recipe for everyone. There definitely isn't. We all have a different uh, background. We've all you know, endured or, or experienced our own type of traumas in our lives, you know, from childhood on up. And it's important for us to know what our, uh, you know, our resilience level is. And we can up that level, but we need to know what it is so that as we're going along in our everyday work, we we recognize our own symptoms of, you know, yeah, I'm really getting emotionally fatigued or physically I don't want to get up in the morning to go to work or or in, in this case, especially with, with um, compassion fatigue, when if you're really traumatized with compassion fatigue, you know, you're, you're you know, even almost in a, you know, borderline post-traumatic stress 
type of situation where just thinking about the people that have experienced the trauma, whatever type of trauma it would be, would emotionally overtake you. So all of that together is a lot of awareness that a person has to have. And I think people in the field in general do have awareness like that. I think that's what takes them to these various fields because they've got compassion. You know, they've got, you know, love for humanity, et cetera. And I think they've got that general awareness. But realizing, you know, your own limitations is not as easy, you know, as as really (laughs) opening yourself up to other people and loving them in full. (laughs) <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I mean, I often feel as though, uh, you know, healthcare providers are the worst in terms of caring for themselves or, or, or allowing, giving themselves permission to do that. It's as though, no, they're, you know, there to care for others. Um, and we sometimes forget that uh, not only is it okay to give ourselves permission to care for ourselves, but that we have to. Exactly. And as you say that, you know, the, the cliche, but it's so true that, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup. So we don't sometimes, you know, allow ourselves to fill our cup. But after a while, there's nothing left to give. So you're not doing anyone any good if you don't fill your cup periodically so that you can continue to give in a way that's meaningful to you and you don't become resentful or, or just physically and emotionally burnt out. So it is very important for that. And I think along this caregiver guide, too, I think in terms of the folks that, you know, the sandwich generation, you know, they've got their children to care for, but they also have an elderly parent potentially, or they have a handicapped child or a parent that needs special attention. So sometimes, you know, you've got that middle person that's just got all of that caregiving placed onto them. And there's so many resources out there that could help with that. And I think sometimes people don't realize that. And that awareness just needs to be more and more out in the world now that nobody has to be alone at all anymore. And and I think sometimes people isolate because when they get too stressed out, they go inward. But what we need to do is reach outward because there's so much in every area, whether you're a first responder, whether you're a nurse, a doctor, a therapist, or a caregiver in your own private home. There are so many resources for each of those people, and we need to make awareness for that and encourage people and and help them feel like they have permission. Nobody needs to give someone permission, but sometimes we feel like we need it from someone. Like, if you tell me I could go uh, take a hot bath, please? <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> and, and I wonder, too, if there's um, – there's, you know, there's a little bit of sort of, amb- I don't know if it's ambition or perfectionism amongst caregivers or care providers that, uh, you know, I think there sometimes there's a bit of a hesitation. You're absolutely right. The resources are out there. No one has to be alone, but there's a, a hesitation to access it because it's like, well, no, I'm supposed to be the one giving the care. I can't be the one who needs it. Um, but it's such an upside down way of thinking. Well, yeah, and that word that comes to mind, too, for that is stigma. And I think a lot of people feel, you know, like there's a stigma because if I, you know, I think it's like military people with post-traumatic stress, you know, if they think, oh, gosh, if I go and get assistance, then that's going to be on my record and people are going to know that I'm weak at this moment and, and you know, considered a weakness when it's not. But that's what people think. So they hesitate. But the reality is it's really a strength to go get help and, um, 
to, you know, just, I think sometimes, you know, professionals too, they just feel like, you know, the job is never done. And it is never done. I mean, there's always going to be somebody that needs help in the world, whether you're, again, you know, first responder or doctor or nurse or therapist. There's always somebody that needs help. And even in your own family, there's always going to be somebody that needs something. But we all need to recognize within ourselves what our limitations are and feel okay about that and not feel guilty, which I think guilt rides a lot of things too. And we need to be able to, to feel confident about what our capabilities are and recognize when we've had enough and when we need to have our cup filled again and, and not have any kind of a stigma about doing that. I, I think you're really right. And I like how you say we need to recognize that it's okay. It's okay to need to, as you say, replenish your cup. It's okay to need, you know, recognize that, okay, this is my limit in this moment. Um, and uh, we sometimes have a hard time, I think, verbalizing that it's okay. So I, the more, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm grateful to you for saying this, uh, you know, over the airwaves, I think the more that people hear that, um, hopefully the more that it'll, it'll sink in. So, I, you know, I, you certainly convinced me that this is, you know, a, a serious issue for so many people and just a reality of the kind of work that they do. So now, here you are, someone with years and years of experience in the field of therapeutic humor. What on earth is the connection between humor, therapeutic humor, and compassion fatigue? Well, funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. What I have found for myself is years ago when I um, became a professional clown, because that's what I did for 20-some years, and that's how I got involved with health and humor, I realized for myself, too, because it was I was a young mom with two young kids and, you know, the, the stress of, you know, the normal stresses, you know, of raising a family and, and being a stay-at-home mom and then trying to find something for me. And so I became involved. But as I became involved, I realized that the impact that I had as a, a clown with the community, um, whether it be, you know, visiting nursing homes with elderly or visiting the sick kids in the hospital or just being out in the community in general uh, and how uh, how much it made a person's day. It just made people smile immediately. I know in today's world people run and they're afraid of clowns and all that, but this is a while ago and there's still plenty of people that are not uh, afraid of, of clowns and enjoy them. And it just really can bring a smile to their face and, and bring them into the moment. I think that's what happens a lot of times. People are thinking about tomorrow, next year, whenever. And when you've got the presence of humor and, in this case, a clown, you're in the moment and you get to enjoy the moment. And I think in general that's what therapeutic humor does. It, it just brings you into the here and now and you get to enjoy life this moment. And so you're not worrying about where I'm supposed to be or what I should do tomorrow, but you're just having a good time in this moment. And your body's responding to that. And your body needs to respond to that on a regular basis. So it needs to experience it on a regular basis so that those negative chemistry in our bodies that that starts flowing around cortisol and different chemistry that flows when we're having a tough time or under a lot of stress, we need to break that cycle. And therapeutic humor and laughter, among other things, but we're talking about therapeutic humor, can help break that cycle. 
I, I like how you describe it as, you know, humor being something that brings you into the present moment um, and releases tension in that most we all need to do in that moment. I mean, very similarly to, you know, these concepts of mindfulness or meditation or yoga, it really is the same kind of principle that you are very fully present in a moment that is positive um, and tension releasing and everything else is let go. Yes, exactly. And that's what's, it's just so important because our bodies, you know, we're on the go. Most of us are on the go all the time. And, you know, we've got that tension. We've got to hurry and get to work or hurry and do whatever. And that just, again, like you said, the mindfulness or yoga, being in nature, you know, even you talked about Norman Cousins, you know, what, going to a funny movie, just whatever, being with friends, you know, laughing, Whatever it is, and, and for each person it's different, but whatever it is, that's what we need to do more of it so that our bodies can be building the resilience that they need to put up with today's stressors in our lives. For sure. Everybody needs it. Um, and, and in particular, as we're talking about today, these sort of healthcare providers who are working in crisis kinds of situations have such an intense need for those moments of uh, presence and, and stress relief. But, but let's sort of talk more concretely. So I, I, you know, you have me convinced in terms of the value of humor to do that, but what does a healthcare provider actually do? I mean, we're not suggesting that they, they bring a clown into the operating room. So, so what do they actually do to incorporate humor as a strategy? Well, funny you should say that, Maya, because they do bring them in to hospitals. Yes, and into, but not here in the United States that I'm aware of. In Israel and other places, uh, parts of the country, they, they really value the therapeutic clowning a little more than we do here in the United States, I think, because, again, a lot of people are afraid of clowns in the United States probably because of our movies and things like that. But in other countries, they really are part of, the healing process. They are in the the, uh, the emergency rooms. They're in the operating rooms. They're literally trained and to be part of that healing process and to create. Obviously, it's if the client is comfortable with it in advance. It's not something they throw in on them. But if that relationship and that situation is there, and the person would have benefit by having the clown there, it does happen. So it's it's really kind of it's exciting to me how in um, other parts of the world that that it is really really valued more here than like I say than here. Although we have a good medical therapeutic clown system here as well, but it's it's more of um, um, sometimes they do go room to room, but sometimes it's just they might be in one room in the hospital, and if a you know a patient comes into that room and they all bring them in and they do a show or interact and however they're going to interact. But in, in other parts of the world, they definitely have a real major role in the healing process. So it's kind of neat and exciting to see that for me, having had a history myself of, you know, being in the, the, that clown world for a while. Yeah, it's true. And, I, and I've also sort of heard and read about the work that's happening in Israel where uh, the therapeutic clowns are very much built into the medical system um, as an essential part of it, uh, as opposed to here where it's perhaps a little bit more still seen a bit more alternatively or complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's room to move towards that, I'm sure, I'm sure. You know, you described clowns in the emergency room, and, and my 
my first reaction is, oh my gosh, that's so inappropriate. <laughs> is it? Uh, you know, I guess it's not there. They don't think it is. And I, I have a feeling that um, it depends on, um, I mean, they probably just aren't hanging out there. Where, but I guess I'm going to say probably, and I don't know this for 100% for sure, but most likely if someone came into the emergency room and they saw that there was uh, an opportunity or need for or one that would be accepted in that experience, I don't think they're just there in general Um you know, hanging out kind of thing, but I think they probably could be brought in. Let's say a little child comes in, you know, the emergency room, they've, you know, got, I don't know, you know, just something, you know, they fell and hurt something, but, you know, they're still okay, and, and, you know, they can, the clown might just be able to distract the child, and that's what they do a little bit with the clowns, and especially in the operating situation, is they use them to help distract, or if they say they have to get shots, they're diabetic or whatever, and they need to get shots, that they use the clown to help distract, to talk, to make them laugh, and so they won't feel the pain of whatever thing that they're going to have to do to the, the person. Because humor really is a fantastic means of distraction, isn't it? I think it definitely can be, and I think, you know, laughter, you know, when you're laughing, you're using, you know, your lungs and, and your your whole body, your mind, your your whole body is involved with that activity, and I think probably it's more difficult to uh, be experiencing the, a pain or a different emotion in your body if you're laughing. So I think it's probably a really good uh, uh, non-pharmaceutical <laughs> alternative. Which is great. I think we're always looking for those alternatives. So, yeah. so for sure, for the patient, I can see that I can see the value in terms of distraction and actually physically what it does for you. How can you know? We're talking about healthcare providers or caregivers who are experiencing compassion fatigue. How could humor be helpful for them in, in, in a more concrete way? How could someone incorporate or use humor as one of their self-care strategies? Well, I'm, I'm personally also trained as a certified laughter leader, and uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, that we recommend is laughing every day, you know, just, and, and basically it's laughing for no reason. So instilling that habit of laughing and increasing the positive endorphins and chemistry in your body helps build that re- resilience so that you can uh, not only feel internally different, but even look at life differently. Because when you're uh, in a fun, you know, humorous, laughing uh, experience, you're going to be more positive. You're going to be looking for the good in the situation. It all kind of all goes together. Being grateful for what you've got, all of that kind of rolls up into a ball of just adding resilience to your body, to your mind and creating an environment for, again, resilience and success. So finding ways to, to laugh, and, and again, I suppose it's really individual, whatever it is that, that works for you, whether it is, as you say, sort of laughter, laughter yoga kind of techniques or, or other methods of finding ways to laugh uh, with friends or however um, could be a strategy for someone in terms of their own regular, because we're talking about sort of preventive self-care, right? 
Right. And my personal favorite for me personally is I love going to the movies. I love going to comedies. <laughs> I love children's movies. They make me smile. And that's the thing, too. You don't always have to be full out laughter. If you just sit, if you just have a smile on your face, there's research that just your, your mouth in the form of a smile gives you uh, medical benefits. So just even if you go to, you know, a comedy show or a funny movie and that you're not out, you know, a belly buster laugh, but you're just sitting there with a smile on your face the whole time, that is doing positive work in your body. It's so simple. <laughs> well, it it could be, you know, as, as long as we um, allow ourselves, again, give ourselves permission to – you know, some people don't want to look silly, like, you know, in the in the laughter clubs, you know, some people don't buy into that because laughing for no reason might seem too silly for them or that, you know, it's, they don't, they just don't, it's just not their thing. And so I think everyone's different in how they want to um, approach laughter and humor in their lives. But we all know that it's important, you know, I mean, some people have more, maybe better sense of humor than others. Some people maybe like to laugh more than others, but it is an element of our lives that we do need. And so people that don't have any joy or laughter in their lives are usually kind of depressed. And so it's important, you know, to recognize that in yourself. If you find that, you know, again, we're talking about these, these jobs that might create that. If you find that you're just not, you know, enjoying life and you're just sad and you're, you know, emotionally you know, exhausted and you can't, nothing's fun or funny anymore, then that's the time to really, you know, uh, take notice of your body and yourself and, and seek out the help that you need in whatever way that is, whether that's, you know, uh, a mental health therapist or whether it's, you know, seeking out your friends and your family um, or seeking out a laughter club and getting a connection in the community reaching out in whatever way you can. And I think people just sometimes just get isolated and go inward when, and you can even laugh by yourself and you may think you're crazy doing it, but that's fun to do too. (laughs) There's so many alternatives. (laughs) I do that all the time. (laughs) (laughs) You do silly, you know, you you do, you know, you accidentally uh, drop something or you do something silly in your house and just laugh at yourself, you know, about what you thought or what you did or, it's it's healthy. Uh, I I could not agree more. Uh, you know, and sometimes sometimes the laughing by yourself is also sort of a reminder to not take ourselves so seriously, uh, which I think can also maybe be helpful sometimes. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that that you know, especially when we have serious work. Um, my brother used to work for the um, county coroner's office, and uh, you know, and we. we didn't talk about gallows humor, but, you know, the kind of humor that, that professionals have amongst themselves, which if the outside people hear it, they might probably be offended. But when people work in those environments, they have to have ways to diffuse that tension amongst themselves. And so they, you know, they have things that they say to each other that maybe as an outsider, not in that business, we might be horrified or we might be offended, but for them it works. So, it kind of brings me to the point of having appropriate, you know, laughter and humor as well because, you know, we never obviously want to be laughing at someone at their expense. And so that's always important too. Um, but it's, but there are different types of laughter and, and, and ways to find it. 
I, I'm glad you brought up gallows humor because, you know, these professions that we're talking about that are quite serious, um, that's something that I've seen as well, that, that the humor amongst the, the people who are working can get quite, quite dark. And there's always this question of, you know, is that okay? Is it respectful? What are, you, what are your thoughts on that in terms of it being respectful or not towards perhaps the patients and clients that they're, they're working with, that sort of dark humor that happens uh, in the scrub room or behind the scenes? Right. You know, I, I think it just has to serve its purpose for the, for the caregiver because, um, you know, sometimes the work is just so – um, horrific, and it would it's traumatizing, you know, for the caregiver, and so um, they need a way, you know, to express themselves. And I think, I think for the most part, that they would be respectful as far as not saying it in front of anybody, but saying it, you know, to themselves or you know, with fellow uh, workers. And I, I, I think, I just think it has its benefit, you know. And, and I'm sure if anybody heard it, they would be offended, but. I feel like it's probably needed just so that they can release their tension and their discomfort because to see trauma, to see things that our eyes were never meant to see is just very traumatizing on the body. So maybe even being able to laugh about some of it is actually a healing, a good thing. Uh, what you say makes sense. That I think sometimes it's it's necessary to uh, to sort of detach a little bit from, as you say, these things that that no one should ever really have to see. Now, but is laughter and humor in those kinds of situations or by these kinds of professionals ever a sign that someone is not coping well? I mean, could it ever be sort of a maladaptive strategy for coping with the stress? Oh, I think so, definitely, yeah. And even even people in general, you know, when the the um, humor gets very sarcastic and you know it's always at someone else's expense, that is not a good sign of healthy humor. So in the caregiving situation, I'm sure that would be the case as well. I'm not privy to, I've not ever experienced that myself in the caregiving situation. So I'm just this just my own opinion on that. But I'm sure that things can get out of hand and and. Again, I think it depends on people's personalities. That same personality that's snarky and sarcastic might go over the edge in gallows humor as well because that's just how they view life and that's how they express themselves. Um, so I think it's definitely possible that it could it could be an indicator of needing a break or, you know, needing a respite from the kind of work that you're doing. That makes sense. And I'm wondering even if it could be sort of a um... – a sign of, you know, we're talking a lot about self-awareness and the importance of being aware of how you're doing. And I'm wondering sometimes if um, the use of humor or laughing could ever be a bit of a sign of denial that, in fact, you're not doing so well. Oh, yes, I, I agree. I definitely think it could be a, a big sign. And, and, and I think probably you potentially wouldn't even recognize that in yourself. And, hmm. and most likely you're colleagues would probably need to kind of point that out to you I would imagine that maybe you've just gone down the you know dark hole a little bit too much or something and and uh you know kind of do a reality check I would think because I feel like it it would be very easy to um you know go over the deep end with any any kind of of these 
jobs that require so much uh, access and attention to traumatic events. It would almost be surprising if someone, you know, in that kind of field uh, for a period of time never went went on the deep end. I mean, I, I, I think yeah. it's probably a part of the reality. And what's more important is doing what you can to, uh, you know, boost yourself as much as possible in advance and then to deal with it when it does happen in a, a, the most healthy way and to be okay with reaching out for whatever it is that you need to be able to do that. Well, yeah, I agree, and, and, I, and an example of that would be after in Orlando when we had the, you know, the Pulse nightclub shootings, and um, it, I was so impressed after the event and the response that we had because people, I mean, if whatever your area of expertise was, within a day you were here doing it. So if you had therapy dogs, you were here the next day. They came from other states with your therapy dogs to make sure people – especially mental health counselors, because that's who and mostly we're dealing with it, besides you know, a few doctors and nurses too at the one hospital, but mostly the mental health people. So the, the dogs, that if you were a massage therapist, you set up shop in, in as close as you could to where the therapist would be. Everybody brought to the table what they could offer to help diffuse the situation, to help uh, empower people, to help people process emotionally, um, it, I'm so proud and, and amazed at how everybody brought what they had to help other caregivers. It was amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Cynthia, because, you know, I'm not sure that that story or that part of the story got out in the media in the same way. I mean, we all sort of heard the horrors, um, but, of course, in those situations of, of horrible crisis there are those who um, come out in full force with their kindness and compassion. And so it's, it's actually really nice to hear sort of what happened and some of those details uh, with the helpers who came out in the forefront. Thanks for sharing that. Well, yeah, it's, it's actually one of the, the um, talks that I'm going to do at the um, Association for Therapeutic Humor Conference in Orlando in April. And I'm going to be um, – going into more detail about how that, um, re- how our response was here in Orlando and, and all the good that came out of it and, and how Orlando started healing uh, through humor and the arts. And it's not even, it's not been a year and the healing is continuing and I'm sure it will continue for a long time. But the main thing is we are healing and it's just, it's just amazing how all of the arts, including humor, really make a difference in, uh, during times like this. Yes, yes. And I, I I particularly like how you describe humor as an art, Cynthia. <laughs> because <laughs> it kind of is, it is no, but you know what? It it is the use of healthy humor um in the right moment, in the right way, with the right intention. Um you're it is an art. So I like how you say that. Well, I'm glad you like it because I agree, I do. I believe it's an art and I think that it's so important that it's included, you know, in all these other areas that can do a body good, so to speak. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, Cynthia, I am um, an administrator in the healthcare system. And, you know, as, as we talk about compassion fatigue and the use of humor and the need for self-care, I always think about, okay, so what is the role for administrators or 
leaders in the healthcare system in terms of helping these professionals um, either develop or use humor in this way uh, as a, as a method of self-care. And I don't know if you've got any sort of words of advice or ideas of what we should be thinking about or trying to do as we support our staff in that way. Well, one of the things that um, I personally just did, and I don't know that hospitals or, or uh, uh, institutions would, are able to do this very often, but um, I just personally uh, produced a, an all-day retreat that started out with, you know, um, laughter, and we did various types of yoga, and we did aromatherapy, and we did walking meditation, and a dance meditation, and we did drumming, and and we had a fire and a hayride and some oars, and we just had this fun day out on an, in the National Forest. And it was for caregivers that were anybody that was affected by, you know, the, the pulse situation. So I think that giving people opportunities, whether it be bringing in, you know, a, a speaker, not I say just a speaker, but, you know, bringing someone in that's going to create some fun for the group, uh, allowing your people to attend uh, events like what I just described that can, you know, renew um, a person's soul. Uh, also, just to um, be aware of the work environment, too, which doesn't really have anything to do with laughter per se, but, you know, just, just keeping the workload so it's not overwhelming for the people, making sure there's enough staff so that they're not – I know I talk to some nurses, and, you know, a lot of times they're just overwhelmed and burn out just because of the – logistics of their job so if the logistics were all good then we could really concentrate on the emotional part of it because they wouldn't have to worry about being on just overload because of logistics and you could really create time you know for uh, laughter opportunities and and, uh, and and team building which creates resilience and you know too so I would say all of that it would be good if it was possible all excellent, excellent advice, and uh, that retreat sounds wonderful. What a great idea, um, and how beneficial just to be able to take that time uh, in that way. That sounds really great. The people really enjoyed it. I did a, a little – it's actually um, because, again, you're part of the Therapeutic Humor Group, and that was my uh, Humor Academy project. And so um, I did a little bit of uh, a pre-survey and a post-survey to see, you know, how people were feeling. And they were all mental health counselors, how they were feeling prior to and then after at the end of the day. And then also, you know, which of these interventions that we did during the day would they, are they already doing and which ones they might consider doing. So it was an interesting, and again, I'm going to present on that too at the conference in April, but it was interesting that, um, Everyone, and there, there was it was 20 people, and it's not, it wasn't a huge group because it's a, a, a small opportunity, you know, to have a retreat together, and, and it's better that they're not too big. But, you know, all of them, you know, expressed improvement in their mood and, and interest in, in um, trying new things and, and, create, and using some of these interventions. All of them were exposed for the first time to the laughter um, therapy and uh, many of them, I'm not going to say all of them, but many of them said, yes, they like that and they would be interested in doing that again. I wouldn't expect all of them to say yes. So it was just nice that a majority were, were interested in, in being part of a group like that. So I, I feel like, you know, just exposing, you know, people to the different ways that they can 
take care of themselves, and then encouraging them to give themselves permission um, are just key to helping people stay resilient and um, healthy and productive. That's right, because you're only productive when you are healthy physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, otherwise, you can't do the work. So it really is essential. And I, and I like how you summarize it. It's really about giving people both permission and opportunities uh, to practice some of these self-care um, strategies. Cynthia, you know, you're talking about this, this conference that's upcoming and, and your talk sounds just fascinating and this retreat that you've done. What's coming up next for you? Do you have any other interesting projects uh, on the horizon? Well, I'm currently working towards uh, my licensure in mental health counseling in Florida. And so um, that, that is what I do full-time is just work with clients and work with the various nonprofits here in Orlando. So April um, for the conference is kind of the next big hoopla-la with a lot of people to come play with <laughs> together because that's what we do. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I don't have another conference uh, or a weekend retreat planned at this point, but that is uh, my next agenda is to – I like to find different populations. In this case, it was mental health counselors, but to find different populations of people that need that opportunity for an all-day retreat um, and then present that workshop opportunity for them. So it could be a different type of caregiver that would be – um, interested and available. Like some of the work I do uh, here in Orlando is with uh, Base Camp, which is a children's cancer um, organization. And so we do um, like retreats with the, the little ones, the, the kids. And so, and then sometimes we actually do things obviously with the parents as well and the kids are doing something else. So there's, there's all different ways to um, have access, you know, and, and to be able to spread the opportunity of self-care out there in the community. Oh, I have a feeling that there are so many of those populations as you uh, describe them that I think they're going to be keeping you very, very busy because the need is there. And, and yeah. Cynthia, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today to take the time to talk about this. And, you know, if at the very least there's someone out there who has listened to this and it's just popped a thought in their mind of, you know what? maybe I'm not doing so well and I need to do something about that, then uh, we have certainly been successful. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, I appreciate you having me on, and I'm very honored to be the first guest of the new year. I think that's a good <laughs> omen for me. I like that. <laughs> I think it's a good omen for me and for the show. What a wonderful way to start off 2017. <laughs> thank Perfect. you so much, Cynthia. You have a wonderful rest of the day. Thanks, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Cynthia Keeler. Next week, join me, same time, same place, as I share a conversation with positive psychology blogger Andy Proctor about PERMA 51. No, this has nothing to do with secret alien sites in the desert of Nevada. PERMA 51 is a goal that uh, Western father of positive psychology, Martin Seligman, uh, sort of named. And his vision is that by the year 2051, 51% of the people of the world will be flourishing. PERMA 51. 
pipe dreams or is this actually attainable? Tune in next week to find out. Maybe 2017 is our turning point and we are on our way. To leave you, I thought uh, I would leave you with some last words about the new year that resonated with me so much. Uh, Written by Neil Gaiman, the author, he wrote... I hoped that I hope that in this year to come you make mistakes. Because if you're making mistakes then you are making new things, trying new things, learning, living, pushing yourself, changing yourself, changing your world. You're doing things you've never done before and more importantly you're doing something. So that's my wish for you and all of us and my wish for myself. Make new mistakes. Make glorious, amazing mistakes. Make mistakes nobody's ever made before. Don't freeze. Don't stop. Don't worry that it isn't good enough or isn't perfect. Whatever it is, art or love or work or family or life, Whatever it is you're scared of doing, do it. Make your mistakes next year and forever. This is Maya, and I am out. Day job, but I feel so free, baby. I-